Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello, my name is James. Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tammy Ritzma who's an Associate Professor at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and an Honorary Senior Lecturer at St George's University in London on their Physician Associate course. Welcome to the podcast, Tammy. Thank you very much for having me. Lots of Physician Associates, I think, have a keen interest in becoming educators, whether Mm -hmm. that's just a casual helping the PA students that they see on ward rounds that come for placements, or for a lot of people, I think that's a more formal, perhaps wanting to do teaching and lecturing in the future. Sure. What advice would you have for people, physician associates that want to become better educators? I am so glad you asked this question. This is an excellent question. And it's something I'm exceedingly passionate about. So you hit right on the nose there. The first thing is that there is a role for literally every single PA in education. Every single one. Whether it is, as you say, you know, a student comes on your ward right? And you have the opportunity to take them under your wing and share your knowledge with them and help further the role of the PA and help them better understand the role of the PA, the way that they're working. Whether it's um, little one-offs along the way, you know, whether that is, you know, I know when I come to London, um, we have a lot of alumni who come because I teach things like suturing, skin biopsies, ABGs, you know, placing cannulas, things like that. And it's great to have, you know, ward PAs along um, to help teach those skills. And it's so wonderful from a role model perspective for our students to have access to living, breathing PAs. And, you know, it was okay at the beginning. I was a role model as a PA, but I'm an American PA, right? It's even better for my students to see graduates of our course who come back, who were in their shoes just two or three years ago. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, to contact your local PA course about the, the even the small one-off opportunities, you know. You can get involved in um, examining for OSCEs. There's, we always have a need for OSCE examiners. And particularly if you have a generalist background like GP or acute medicine, where you can examine really any station, you know, that's a huge asset to um, PA educators. And in doing these things, you are gaining different skills that are needed in PA education, classroom teaching, practical bedside teaching, laboratory teaching, assessment, all of these things. Of course, come and and I sort of missed the obvious one, teach, you know, teach a lecture in your area of expertise, PBL groups, right? Um, I know a lot of PAs who their entry into education is, they spent a year or two teaching a PBL group at their local uni. um, And that gave them an introduction to the teaching part, but also an introduction to the team at that uni. So there are so many opportunities. And I would just really, from the bottom of my heart, encourage every PA to get involved. And actually not even just involved in the education of PAs, right? If there are student nurses, there are student doctors, physios, pharmacists that are coming through, you know, practice your teaching skills with all of them. Absolutely. It's one of the things I enjoy the most about being a PA is having healthcare students of any discipline, med students, Mm -hmm. PA students, Mm -hmm. 
whoever wants to listen, I will tell them what I know and share and we'll learn. And I usually learn something as well. As exactly. No, absolutely. Because students ask good questions, right? That really make us dig down and think about our pathophysiology or pharmacology a bit. The other thing I will say about educating other students is it's a great opportunity to be an ambassador for the profession. Would you say it's necessary for all PAs to consider getting a formal teaching qualification, like a PGCME? Or... Um, I, I wouldn't say, I definitely wouldn't say all PAs, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, usually if you are hired on by a uni in a, in a longitudinal role, right, where you're going to be a regular part of the uni course, I know that they, they would like that. And I think it's very helpful. And I think that certainly the theory... Um, of education is is very helpful in your thinking about how to design sessions and especially in how to design sessions that are more than you just standing up there reading your PowerPoint slides, right? There's um, there's much more engaging approaches than that. And so I think a PG cert um, is extremely, or I'm sure there are other types of qualifications, but mine's a PG cert. Even in America, we have PG cert. And um, I know at George's, they have PG cert, but definitely not necessary and certainly certainly not necessary for, you know, you coming right out of PA school. You know, if you're coming out of PA school and you're six months in and you're working in GP or you're working in A&E or acute medicine and a student of any sort comes by, I don't think you need a PG cert to be meaningfully involved with them. No, I agree. Absolutely. I think that's, that's true. Everybody has a role to play, like you said. Do you think with the pandemic shifting everything online, and I think most teaching courses in any discipline, in any university across the world, it was all shunted on online quite quickly, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you think it will shunt back to face-to-face as quickly? Or do you think there'll be some sort of hybrid blended you know, approach? I think that's a really good question. And it's been very interesting to think about this because some of the decisions that are being made, at least at my uni, about that are driven by things other than simply educational considerations. So um, at my uni in America, for example, we have some courses that are fully online. We have some courses that were designed as hybrid courses. And then we have some courses that are almost fully online. And um, what resources you get within the university in terms of office space, laboratory time, et cetera, are dictated to a certain extent by which of those three classifications you fall into. And so, um, you know, we're headed back at my uni to fully on campus. Um, We'll see what the Delta variant has to say about that. I think that we definitely have learned some things that work better online. And I think we'll probably keep those things. So for example, we had an exciting opportunity at my uni. We have a module on the role of the physician assistant or physician associate. I usually teach a little two-hour session on the role of the PA or clinical officers or other PA-like professions around the world. Usually that consists of a moderately boring lecture from me, but this year I actually shortened my lecture quite a lot, recorded it, and then um, had the students come online on Zoom with PAs from around the world who were equally able to come online on Zoom. That's cool. You know, in their own time zone, of course. 
and just chat to my students. And as you can imagine, the students loved it. And the PAs from around the world loved it. Oh my goodness. Can I come to the next one of those? That sounds really interesting. <laughs> I'll send you them. a link. That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, we've also learned what absolutely really cannot effectively be done online and physical examination skills and clinical communication skills are much more challenging to do online. And, and, you know, we all hope to go back to that soon. I also think that if you conceptualize education as the transmission of facts from my head to facts to your head, then sure. Why not do all online? because I can transmit facts just as easily this way as I can in the classroom. But I don't conceptualize education that way. I conceptualize education as a shared experience that we can all partake in, that we can all, including the instructor, learn from. Um, I think that there's not the same ebb and flow of ideas and questions. Um, There's not the same opportunity to kind of quickly dive into a case or something like that, that there is when you're live. So I, I eagerly anticipate being back in the classroom with my students. And my background in neurology, I'm very interested in the cognitive neuroscience of learning. I mean, we know, right, that people do not attend to something on a screen with the same intensity that they attend to a in-person experience. Yeah, absolutely. There's definite benefits as well of, like you were saying, logistically, a lot easier to find speakers who can come Mm -hmm. in and deliver your lectures. And perhaps it's easier for the students if they're not having to commute on and off to campus every day. I wonder if a lot of courses might end up doing some online, some. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And I think we don't have the answers yet because every time we think we're coming to an answer, the um, situation with the um, pandemic changes. Yeah. There's obviously also a big push, certainly in my experience in the NHS, and I'm interested to know if it's true across the states as well, but we're using more digital technology in the NHS for consultations. So in GP land, we're doing a lot more of the phone and video consultations. And I wonder whether that will have to get built into curricula in VA learning to learn how to do consultations like that. Absolutely, actually. And I know know we've done that. at, at my uni, and I know they've done it um, at St. George's. I know they've done it at Brighton because it is, it's going to be an essential skill to know how to do online consultation. And I mean, communication skills, but also like, how can you approximate a physical examination? Right. And there actually are some techniques you can use to do that, but um, they're not, they're not obvious. And they're definitely not obvious to somebody who's just learned the physical examination. One of the points we were talking about earlier sparked another idea in my head. It was about the point around using those small teaching moments on the ward to show yourself as an ambassador for the profession. And off on that tangent, my mind went along how else we prove the worth of PAs or show the value of physician associates. Mm -hmm. And I know one of your other passions is around research into the workforce. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? In the United States, there wasn't a lot of research at the beginning of the profession. And that's partly because health services research wasn't even really a thing in the 1960s, right? People didn't do that kind of research. And so that kind of research was also not done on the profession. 
Um, and so what I actually did when I was the research director for UCAPA and later on for the Faculty of Physician Associates is um, I'm honored to know a number of people who were involved at the very beginning of the PA profession in the United States. And I went to them and I said, if you could, you know, sort of teleport yourself back to 1967 and you were starting, what questions would you ask? What kind of things would you track? And um, that's what we attempted to incorporate into the um, PA census to understand scope of practice, to understand relationships with members of the medical team, to understand just basics, right? Specialty, what course people graduated from, what all their different roles are, and to just track that over time. And for example, one of the things that we've been able to demonstrate is that I think initially the PA role in the in the UK was conceptualized to really help out in GP, but uptake in GP was actually quite low at the beginning. Partly that had to do with issues of ordering and prescribing or requesting and prescribing. And so, you know, the doing the census every year allows us to, to see those changes over time, right? And so, interestingly, I think part of what fixed the issues in GP was that there was e-prescribing. So patients didn't necessarily expect to be handed a paper prescription anymore. They just knew it would be available at Boots, you know, in a few hours. And so that enabled GP PAs to just walk down the hall and to talk with one of their doctors and get them to e-prescribe for what was needed. And that seems to have solved one of the issues that we had for a while in GP. I've done some work around uh, uh, satisfaction. Um, there were some questions in sort of the um, I don't know, early, like 2013, 2014, in, um, there was a little letter to the editor in one of the, I think it was in BMJ about basically why would a smart person want to be a PA instead of a doctor? If you're smart, why wouldn't you just be a doctor? That made my head explode. Yeah. And, you know, I said, well, let's find out, right? Let's find out why PAs want to be PAs and if they're satisfied with their work. And, you know, they were, they are. Um, which is actually very consonant with um, research in PA job satisfaction in the U.S. and the Netherlands as well. And PAs were really happy with their role, um, particularly hospital PAs, I think, who often can see the benefit that they provide in terms of continuity of care. I guess one of the questions that has popped into my head then is, what questions do you think we should be asking as a profession now? Yeah. For me, one of the big topics that interests me is around identity, what the physician associate identity is for different people, what it means to them to be a PA, and how that links into how we're seen within our multidisciplinary teams, what the teams think of PAs and, and how that works. What sort of questions do you think would be of value to ask? I think those are excellent questions. Um, it Actually, we did. Lori Williams and I published a paper in 2013 on doctor satisfaction with the PA role, which was a very interesting question that I think would be an interesting question, honestly, to ask again, because we asked it very early. We asked that question in 2012, mm. you know, and when there were something like 100 PAs in the country, and now that there's nearly 4,000, I think that question would be well asked again. Yeah. Um, I think it would be extremely interesting to ask um, those questions of people in other roles. So nurses, administrators, physios, you know, all kinds of different people, pharmacists, 
what their impression of the role is. Um, there's never been a big study of patient view of the role, um, although some of Ari Drennan's work has incorporated that. Some of her qualitative work in GP has incorporated patient voices, which is excellent. Um, but there's been no large-scale survey research done. Uh, and that would actually be extremely interesting to track over time, right, as the PA role becomes more familiar to people across the country um, to see how those change. I think uh, it would be interesting to ask about patient safety. I have a hypothesis that I can't in any way prove at this moment, but that the continuity that we discussed um, is a patient safety benefit um, because you do know that Mrs. Jones never gets better with drug X and always gets better with drug Y, or you remember the time she had that terrible anaphylactic re reaction. Now, obviously those things are captured in the patient's record to a certain degree, but particularly in an A&E context, if things are happening quickly, right, that might not always be right at the top of people's mind. Uh, so I think that would be very interesting to see. And also, I think the role that the PA provides in terms of understanding how to work the system within the hospital, does that provide a patient safety benefit? Because we can get the patients the care they need more efficiently than a junior doctor who's worked there for two weeks. And that's no criticism of junior doctors. If you're moving from hospital to hospital, it's very challenging to understand how to work the system efficiently at the beginning. Absolutely. I'm sure there's some really interesting questions and could spawn some really good papers. Yeah. Uh, can I pitch one more? Please. I think that we need to understand education of PAs in the UK better. Uh, education of PAs in the UK is very unstandardized. You know, I've worked on um, some in the background, I've worked on some ideas about how to um, potentially increase the standardization, not that standardization is completely the goal, right? I think it's fine for different places to have different um, missions. Uh, a PA program in Scotland that's training people to work in the Highlands probably needs to train their students a bit differently than someone who's training their students to work in inner city London. But um, the core medical knowledge should be consistent across so that when people in a trust in the West Mids are hiring a PA or the people that are tr a trust in the Southwest are hiring a PA, they have some idea of what the core, uh, the core knowledge is. And we have the competence and curriculum framework, uh, and that's fantastic, but we just don't have any means of making sure that all the universities are adhering to that at this point. Now, I know that's part of what the GMC is thinking about in the context of regulating um, PAs. And the GMC, of course, does that already for medical schools. But I think that's a dire need. And I think that will only benefit PAs. I think sometimes PAs have felt threatened by that idea. But I think that actually knowing that the PA that you're just meeting has basically the same training as you do um, provides credibility to the profession and um, a sense of reliability. Yeah, absolutely right. Definitely. It'd be interesting to see how some of the different courses interpret those standards as well differently. And obviously with the national exam, things like that, there should be some standard of 
competence as you come out of school, but it is, of course, different in any medical Absol- school. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that is, you know, one of the huge benefits of the national exam. And I know that there have been along the way people who have not been fans of the national exam, who've wanted to abolish the national exam and say, well, doctors don't take the national exam. Well, we don't have any other way, especially when PAs are not regulated, because once we send them out into the world, we have no way to stop them practicing if they're dangerous. Um, But I do think it's important to recognize that the national exam is a minimum competence threshold. It's not an excellence threshold. And I think that uh, trying to do more with making sure that um, PA education is excellent will help us generally exceed Mm. the competence threshold and go more toward an excellence threshold. I, I guess there's just one thing I'd like to add. It's very hard on a day that you're tired or you're frustrated with your practice or you're frustrated with your trust or you're frustrated with your colleagues to always maintain that professional bearing. But do know that when we're early in the profession, everyone is watching and you can have a very powerful positive or a very powerful negative influence on what people think of the physician associate role and our medical competence and our professionalism. And so I just would encourage you, I don't say that to discourage you or make you feel under the microscope, but to just encourage you that by the application of a little bit of professionalism and a lot of positive attitude, that you can be an ambassador every single day with so many different types of people, with doctors, nurses, everyone in the hospital, administrators, patients, families. Um, I actually have a former student who became a PA because of this story. So he was the only child of a single mom and his mom got a very aggressive ovarian cancer. And um, my friend was, well, my friend, my former student, he is my friend. He was about 20 at the time and uh, his mom needed some medicine and he had to work and he had to work because he was trying to support his mom through cancer. And the PA at his mom's GP found out about this and went to the chemist and picked up the prescription and delivered it to her house. And my student said, that's the kind of person I want to be in life. And that's the kind of profession I want to join. And we all have the opportunity to be that person, uh, to help somebody who's suffering, to inspire a young person to a positive career. And so I would just encourage us all to do our very best and to forgive ourselves when we fail, because we will fail, but to do our very best to just be an ambassador for the profession and to be an advocate for our patients. Fantastic. What a good note to end on. Thanks, Timmy. If people have heard this podcast and it's spawned ideas or questions in their head, would you be happy for them to get in touch with you? Certainly. I'll leave your contact details in the show notes of the episode so people can find them. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope that was a really useful chat about physician associate education and research. And like I say, if you'd like to get in touch with Tammy, her contact details will be in the show notes below. If you'd like to get in contact with the Physician Associate Podcast, I'm on social media at PA Podcast UK, on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. 
Leadership Podcast.